Need some motivation on your Chinese business endeavor? May be curious about what the Chinese business environment is all about? Or want to laugh out loud listening to war stories on the ground in China? Then this is your show, China Business Cast. Hi, welcome back to the China Business Cast. Happy to have you all here, and this is part two of the Cross Border Summit. During this part two, we will focus less on Amazon itself. It will be more general. Um, from three high-class speakers that also presented at their at the event, we have Emma Shermer Tamir for speaking more about marketing itself by our company marketing by emma we have john cavendish from ecom dna how to get from offline distributors to an online space and we have james chanet who is a english teacher basically but is voluntarily and is very visible on social media has a lot of followers and uh, it's just great to hear his story and i'm sure we can also learn about this when it comes to education and China particularly. Enjoy. If you want to reach out to these people, feel free to do so. I've put the notes, their contact details, uh, or you can just connect with me and I will help you. This is Simon, Simon Derat, and enjoy the three interviews of today. So we're live now here in a cross-border summit in Guangzhou. Today I have uh, Emma Shermer Tamir with me. She just got off stage uh, talking about marketing, specifically for Amazon sellers. Company is marketing by Emma. So thank you, Emma, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to speaking with you for a few minutes today. So during your talk, you spoke about marketing experts uh, that you don't need to create verbal textiles. What, what would you? What do you mean with textiles and verbal? It's quite a, a nice term. I never heard about that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, really, what I mean is that you need to be finding people that are uh, highly skilled and live and breathe their craft. So whether it's marketing, writing, or design work, or uh, manufacturing, whatever it might be, you want to make sure that you're really working with some. Somebody that's at the top of their game that lives and breathes that specific thing so that they're going to know all of the ways to stay up to date and that's what they're doing whether or not they're working for you. All right. So you, you just got off stage. So what, what do you want uh, the audience to, to take away from, from your speak? I think a few things. So I was talking a lot about a topic that I don't normally talk about, which is how to really find, uh, build, and manage a creative team. And I think one of the things that's really important to remember is that it's, it is a team effort, whether you're hiring a contractor or whether you have an in-house team of creatives. And you want to make sure that you know how to communicate what it is that you're looking for and also know how to communicate when you get something that's not what you wanted. And I I think that the, if I can give one takeaway from today, it's knowing how to give feedback in a constructive way that's going to save you energy and time and also uh, help that person that's doing the work for you uh, achieve an outcome that you're going to both feel good about. And so being able to really uh, get specific and say, this is why I don't like this or this is what I don't like and give that uh, specific feedback rather than just saying, I hate this or this is not at all what I was looking for will help 
uh, both people save frustration and time and just get faster to the finished and the pro not just the finished product, but the product that everybody's really happy about. I saw your slides. You're using also a lot of uh, cool images. Um, actually use a lot of the photo text in your presentation, the, the way you want to, uh, as well, uh, you got a question from the audience about that. How would you describe this photo text thing in, in just a few, a few words? Sure. So essentially, this is most uh, relevant when it comes to lifestyle images. And they always say a photo is worth a, or a picture is worth a thousand words. And so what text allows you to do is make sure that every single person, when they're looking at that image, that they're getting the correct words that you're wanting to communicate, rather than allowing them to interpret that image in whatever way they choose. So the the by incorporating text into images, you're not just showing uh, a picture of your product in real life, but you're helping call attention to a specific benefit or element of your product in a way that's going to have a, a positive outcome. So, so this event is mostly on uh, Amazon, but obviously marketing goes much further than just Amazon. So what kind of, uh, where, where, do, where should you be, be visible as, uh, when it comes to uh, marketing? Is it really your own independent website? You should be on Google or how, how would you, what would you suggest on that? There's not one right way of doing things. I think it's easy to say, okay, well, if you're, you know, you need to diversify, you need to be on every platform, but there are different business strategies and many different ways that people find a lot of success. So there are some people that have businesses exclusively on Amazon. They don't really have presence anywhere else and they do quite well and they have no intentions of adding the additional complexity that it would take to expand onto having their own website on Shopify and social media and all that stuff. I think as, uh, as the marketplace becomes increasingly more competitive, at the very least, you would want to have some social presence to be able to do some of the techniques that you're going to need to do to rank more effectively and um, drive customers to your products and whatnot. However, um, beyond that, it's really a choice of, of how you want to steer your business and if you're really looking to grow and establish a brand or if you're, you are maybe just selling a variety of different products. So it can look like a lot of different things. So in the end, it's actually customized based on what you want, right? The vision, you know, yeah. Exactly. It's your business, so you get to steer the ship in the way that you decide you want to steer it. So as an Amazon seller, actually, you are building your own brand, even though it's on the Amazon platform. You are, although not everybody treats it that way. So, you know, a lot of people find great success in simply identifying where trends are going to be and then manufacturing those products. And so they might have the weirdest product catalog that's not at all related that you wouldn't be able to, to tie in a bow around a pretty brand. Uh, and then there are other people that are very thoughtful and intentional from their very first product about what they would eventually like their entire catalog to look like and they they have that game plan of this is who our target demographic is and these are all the different products that we eventually want to sell so um, I guess it's always a brand and and how you present yourself to your customers is um, is an important part of that equation but it, it on Amazon it starts to get a little bit there, there's a, a greater space where you don't necessarily have to develop a brand if you don't want to, I guess. 
Okay. So, so actually, there's a lot of Chinese selling on Amazon, but there's also a lot of Americans or foreigners getting stuff from China and uh, selling it on Amazon. So, so what would be your uh, advice, let's say, for a Chinese brand that wants to get access on Amazon or a, a, just some, an American or a, or a European seller that's get, selling on Amazon with goods from China? So I would say as where my expertise really comes in is we're all about finding the right words that are going to resonate with your dream customers. And so being very clear about what your product is, what your product does, the problems that it solves, how your customers are going to interact with it, and having a, a very clear idea of all of those things, and then being able to find the right people to translate those ideas and communicate them effectively with the people that you're selling. Because even something as simple as a tube of lipstick, if you're selling it to to a French person, that French person is probably going to have different sorts of cultural references about what French, about what red lipstick means, and maybe even has different expectations of what the ingredients are. Whereas someone in the United States, they're going to have different cultural icons and they're going to have different things that they care about. And so really being clear, even um, from place to place, rather than just thinking, okay, this is one tube of lipstick that I'm going to sell exactly the same way to every single person and every single country. So it's not just about localization, it's also personalization almost. Exactly, uh, because you know, it, even something like red lipstick, there are people that are very concerned about uh, the ingredients in their lipstick. There are other people that are much more concerned about the pricing. Um, there are other people that for them, longevity, you know, they can know that when they put that lipstick on at 7 a.m. that it's going to look perfect at 12 p.m. or sorry, 12 a.m. regardless of, of what nasty ingredients they might need to achieve that. So um, I know specifically when it comes to the U.S. market, customers are very sophisticated and they know what they're looking for and they know how to find what they're looking for. And so if you are clear on what your differentiator is, you need to make that very clear so that you help those customers be able to feel confident that your product is fulfilling that particular need that they're searching for. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, but what will be your message to the ones that are copying other people's uh, pictures and notes and just to have and to focus on the short-term gain of selling on Amazon? I would say that anything that you're doing with a short-term gains in mind is probably going to bite you uh, down the road. And so if you are wanting for the short-term victories, those oftentimes come at a cost. And my opinion and the strategy that I take with my own business is really always focusing on the long gain and long-term game of how am I going to make sure that we have longevity with our business, that we're still here in five, 10, 20 years, and that we're going to be able to maintain that quality and all of those other things. So while it can be very tempting to play some of those dirty tricks, you're exposing yourself to a lot of risks that in the long term, you if you took that time and that effort to invest and you know even that money uh, to invest in your own imagery, for example, uh, it might cost a little bit more upfront, but you're going to make much more in the long run. Mm. And during your, your speech, you used a lot of uh, cool quotes, uh, a lot I can relate to, like the ones from Simon Sinek. Um, he, I think he also has this, this quote about uh, longevity. Do you want it to build something for after you finish your company uh, or do you want it just to, to grow to sell some sort of thing like that so obviously you also mentioned about you mentioned about it's very important to have a clear why so so what will be your why 
My why is multifaceted and one that um, I would say continues to evolve, but the core of it is really to help people develop and grow. And I guess a lot of times when you talk about why it ends up feeling sort of cheesy. So I hope that the sincerity is felt. Um, but what I mean when I say that it evolves is that when we were starting off, I was the one that was doing all of the writing. And so what that meant in those early days is that we were helping only our clients evolve and grow their businesses as well as ourselves. Uh, but now as I'm no longer the one that's doing the actual client work and I have a team of in-house writers that are doing that, I have the opportunity to not only be helping uh, our clients, but also be helping develop my own team and push them to um, develop themselves creatively and professionally. And so it takes on different dimensions as time goes on. All right. That's a good one. So you're we're in Guangzhou. So I think that you just mentioned this is your first time in China. It is. So so what is the your what's your uh, feeling about it? I'm amazed. It is it's so uh, progressive, and um, the food is delicious. I would say um, it's really blown my mind in a very positive way. It's not at all what I expected. I can't. I'm not sure that I know to say what I expected, but I can say that this does not is not what I expected in a very positive way. So good. I'm very happy to hear that. I'm a, a big fan of China. I've been here for eight years, so so I'm uh, happy to uh, share that positivity on what China can do for you uh, mentally and physically and just business wise. So I think this let's let's conclude. Uh, as you, I think you have a lot of other people to talk to as well. So uh, thanks a lot, Emma, for for having making time for us. And um, uh, let's uh, let's go find the next uh, speaker. Thanks a lot. Great. Thank you so much. All right, so I have John with me, John Cavendish, uh, founder of Ecom DNA. Uh, he uh, just had a great talk this morning, um, uh, mostly about uh, uh, VAT and import duties. I think that's what mainly came up. Um, but maybe, John, uh, you can introduce yourself a little bit of what you do and what brought you here in, uh, in, in this, to this Guangzhou event. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simon. Yes, I mean, we, what we do is we provide services to mid-sized brands, so two and a half to ten million in revenue, uh, usually in, in the West who want to go direct on the Amazon platform. So traditionally they've distributed through dealers, dealers and wholesalers, but they realize that these guys now are just taking their stuff and putting it on the Amazon platform and not adding value. So what we do is we help them to go direct without kind of annoying these other guys too much and making sure we manage that relationship as well and make them more money, do their advertising. And at the end of the day, they just do better. And they've got more of a long-term growth strategy with B2C rather than just B2B. So basically you protect their product image or their brand image because all these distributors, they will try to replicate it, but it's never aligned with their real story, brand story. Yeah, I mean, distributors usually just copy and paste stuff from their catalogs. What we do is we actually, we partner with the brands, we represent the brand on their own accounts, and we are like an extension of their marketing team. We do full service management as an extension of their team. So during your presentation, you mentioned about a gap report, uh, an Amazon gap report. So, so what does that really, uh, what does it mean? Uh, so the Gap Report is our flagship product, and it's what we um, it's the main thing we sell, uh, which basically is a full report which tells a brand where they, how they get from where they are now to where they want to be, and it includes everything step by step from you know every action item they have to take, and also puts them in priority. So this is usually when you start up with a consultancy, they'll just create lots of activities for themselves to do, 
what we do is we show, okay, so even if you, if you get us to do this work, if you do this work, or if you get another consultancy to do this work, this is the order in which you need to do the things, because these are the important things. Like, you can spend months doing stuff on Amazon, but it doesn't necessarily add to the bottom line. So we give everything that's wrong with it, how to make everything right, and a step-by-step process. So like a project management tool almost. Uh... Yeah, I mean, it comes in as like a, you know, as a whole suite of things. So it comes as the main report is based out of Excel, but then you get videos, reviews, overview, like everything. Cool. So what do you want uh, people to walk away with after listening to your talk? Um, so this talk was interesting because it's a very varied room of people. Lots of people here have sold an Amazon for a long time and have a lot of experience. But what I wanted people to take away was that Europe's not as scary as people think it is. Because too many people think they don't want to deal with the languages, they don't want to deal with all the VAT and sales tax, and it's a lot more complicated than it is. So what, uh, what I tried to do was pitch it at, at a level that everybody can understand, and also at the end, some higher-level tips for people who've already selling. But it was only about 20, 10, 20% of the room who were selling in Europe. Yeah. So I think that that message definitely uh, came across. So when it looks like, when it when I talk about the uh, VAT and import duties, how how would you make, simplify this if you want to explain this to as a as a to overcome? Uh, well, I'm not a tax agent, so I, I can't I can't <laughs> give any tax advice. Um, but basically, um, the good thing about Amazon Europe is that you only need to enter Europe through one of one country. So whether that's Germany or the UK, usually. I mean, Netherlands you can also do, but then it becomes a bit different on tax with deferred tax. So, for example, you get a sales tax number in the UK, a VAT number, you import the goods, you pay import VAT, and then you claim that back from the UK government. So, it's basically, it's tax-free importation as long as there's no duty on your items. And then when you make a sale, um, you just it, you know, the system automatically records that, and then at the end of three months, you declare how much sales you made, and then you pay sales tax on that. And that's basically it. Um, there's five markets in Europe, which makes it more complicated. So the reason that I say that is that if you're just registered in the UK, you can just hold inventory in the UK, and then you just pay UK sales tax on every sale you make anywhere in Europe, up to some thresholds and things like that, which don't really matter at the start. Um, if you want to take advantage of Amazon's more advanced program, where they store inventory in every single marketplace, uh, then you have to register for more VAT numbers, and it gets more complicated, but then you just have a service do it for you and they charge a certain amount per year. Yeah, so in the end, I think what you also mentioned is uh, uh, don't try it yourself, but get someone who knows what he's doing, right? Of course, yeah. Don't do the registration yourself unless you live in one of these countries and speak the language. I mean, UK is easy to do if you live in England. It's like, because everything's online, it's super easy. But everything else, just get an agent to do it. It'll be like five or 600 euros per year. Yeah. Do you, do you see a lot of differences on the way Amazon, because I mean, you're not only in Europe uh, selling in Amazon Europe, but you're selling in the US and I think also other countries. So what is it the main differences you would see or the main difference in complexity as well? Yeah, so the, the main differences are in market size, obviously, because the US is very big. Um, and it also means you can sell products that are very um, niche in USA. So you can target a product for a specific demographic and still have good volume. In Europe, because the market's smaller and also maybe there's just not as many people searching down those niches, it's very hard to make a lot of money going to a very deep niche product. So you want to be more mass market. It doesn't mean you can't take your niche product from the US and then launch it and call it a mass market product in Europe if it does a similar job. But that's the main difference. Um, Complexity-wise, it's just that Europe, you have the five marketplaces. They're all managed from one account, so that's fine. It just means you have to manage 
five sets of listings, five sets of monitoring, five sets of customer service. And as I talked about in the talk today, you can kind of automate all this stuff very easily because there's software to do it all now. Mm. So, so the podcast is the China Business Cast. So it's about China. So what's, what has been your experience with China and what do you think is the, the, uh, yeah, the biggest obstacle that, you, that, that needs to be overcome? Uh, what, what kind of obstacle? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think I assume you're selling products, so the products are coming. Most a lot of the products are coming from China. Uh, whether it comes to like uh, uh, communication, transit time, maybe compliance, or um, uh, Chinese attacking uh, entering the market as well uh, directly. Okay, so I'll split that into two parts. Yeah. First one, getting products from China, and the second part, Chinese coming into the market. Um, getting products from China is very interesting and it can be very painful. Um, you know, obviously the same things that everyone else deals with, quality control, having Chinese speaking staff. Like I have, um, I did, I did have when I was sourcing a lot more products, a full-time, uh, uh, Taiwanese girl who was amazing. Who used to just talk to all the suppliers for me, get there. Was it Guan Chi? Yeah. Um, uh, build a relationship, send them gifts, everything like that. And we've had very good Chinese suppliers, but it's not as easy for, you know, somebody in a different country to source products and guarantee the quality and all this type of thing. Um, Then in terms of transit, we never have that much problem with logistics apart from delays and also our suppliers trying to use different agents every time and then having to pay DDP and all this stuff. So actually having a, a good quality delivery partner is super important who's not going to screw around and try and send it through a different way that then they said they would send it before you sign up. And that's about it for sourcing in China. Um, for Chinese entering the market, this was super interesting being at this event for that because I learned so much about what's happening in China and how different it is from uh, Europe. So, sorry, not Europe, from Europe or the US local sellers, like the fact that there's a lot more professional selling going on in China at mass market, mass volume. Like talking to people here who are like, people are buying Amazon accounts, thousands of them. The big sellers cycle Amazon accounts, cycle bank accounts, cycle companies. Um, there's a whole business in this. And these guys, you know, guys doing nine figures on Amazon per year. Um, so I think the Chinese sellers are getting very professional. So it's either, it depends if you're talking about like an individual in China who wants to side business making some money or a real business, a decent sized business making some money, or if you're talking about one of these giant farms that people have set up, which is just incredible, like volume, money. Like, I think what people don't realize in Europe and in America is how advanced China is. Everyone thinks, oh, you know, they've got WeChat, but they don't realize that how far ahead China is in terms of wealth and all this stuff. Like, there's so much money in China. And they just deploy that money to make more money. Yeah. Yeah. And so before I was always dealing with these um, Chinese factories, as you call it. And basically, uh, one, I asked one of our customers as well, I was like, so can you share, share me your, your, the website on Amazon? Which one is your store? And he said, which one? I said, how many do you have? Uh, about 1,000. So what? <laughs> But Yeah, and this is the, the whole VAT compliance department. So they have all running all multiple um, uh, hundreds of VAT accounts just to be able uh, to um, yeah sustain a business model. And if something doesn't work, they close it down and they open a new one. And it's really a farm, uh, but there's no, there's no uh, long-term thought behind it except for making money. Um, I, I think to be able to stand out, you will, well, what would be your advice to be able to f fight against these kind of farms? I'm trying to think of something which isn't like the generic, <laughs> have a good product, yeah. write a good listing. Uh, I mean, having a, a differentiated, defensible product is always great. I mean, and having a brand, like too many people just concentrate on Amazon selling rather than building a real brand. 
And that's the reason that as an agency, we partner with people who have real brands because they're already selling through wholesalers and distributors. They have marketing, they have blogs and websites reviewing their products. It makes our job a hundred times easier because there's already, Amazon's already indexed them even if they don't sell on the platform because so many people search for their products on the platform already. Yeah. And Amazon's scraping the internet for useful information all the time. And yeah, just building lists. I know it's this like cliche, but what people do now is they build lists on email, they build lists through Facebook, and they have a list of people that can buy their products. If you can do that and you can show Amazon you're making sales and your product is a good value proposition, either through quality or through uh, price, hopefully you're not competing on price, but quality, um, and the listing's amazing, then you'll make sales and you'll make money. What I like about your concept is that basically uh, a lot of companies or brands, they start online and then go into offline as online as sort of like an exploration phase. Actually, you've reversed it. You, your company customer base is focused on offline and then the offlines are starting to become online. So you actually are trying to uh, have an O2O strategy, right? The online to offline, offline to online. So, so, so is that, uh, what, what, what is that? Uh, you can share a little bit more about like a case that you had or example on, uh, uh why the companies should consider both online and offline, like a real O2O strategy. Yeah. Well, I mean, if a company's offline and they're doing good volume, then it's a no brainer being online as well. Uh, for example, um, we partnered with a, a, like a really good backpack company in the UK recently. Uh, we run all the Rambles and stuff. We took over and three months later, we doubled their account. And that wasn't like cannibalizing other sales. It was like literally just twice as many sales because they just weren't, they had, so they were launching stuff on Amazon, but they hadn't got a good strategy and they had a full-time Amazon guy and their Amazon guy was good. Well, he wasn't that good. He just, he just followed the <laughs> stuff online. And they, like, and the problem is the reason we cre I created the gap report in the first place is so that these owners and people that own companies of, you know, doing two and a half to 10 million can know if their staff are doing a good job without without having to hire us you know for a for a big you know for a decent fee every month yeah. they can just buy a, a report from us we'll tell them if their guys if their people are doing a good job really because as the business owner we never really know if someone's doing the right thing if we have no knowledge about at all about what we're paying them to do so what's the what is the statistics on offline the percentage of of your total sales how much is online and how much is offline like it depends of course but roughly it's normal I mean, it really depends. I mean, all the brands that I talk to, because obviously we get a lot of leads in and then I have a chat. I chat to a lot of business owners, which is great. Um, everyone sees uh, B2C as the future. Um, the only brands I've talked to who uh, you know, have anything more like offline would be like uh, people selling holiday specific goods that end up in a lot of shops. Uh, everybody else sees B2C as the future because people aren't going to shops anymore and Amazon manages the relationship. Yeah, yeah, it's become a very powerful uh, platform. Cool. Uh, any, uh, and uh, I know you're working on your own uh, podcast. So once it's live, I will try to include it. Where can, I, where else can other people uh, uh, find you? Cool. So I mean, my startup, my uh, podcast, which um, is going to be going live in a few weeks, is called Location Independent Startup Show. So the reason it's going live in a few weeks is that I've been at a, a conference last week uh, for location independent <laughs> business owners. And uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things they said is that you have to have a really good buffer of episodes. And the way to make a very successful podcast is to release like a huge amount of content very quickly, basically an episode a day for the first one to two months. So I'm buffering at the moment content so that it can see that I can be omnipresent when I launch it and have a, the best chance of actually building a really good following as fast as possible. We're also going to be marketing on it, marketing for it, because I don't want to just build a podcast that nobody listens to. And that was my, always my... The reason I never wanted to start a podcast in the past because I was like, I don't want to do the, the grind. I want to, you know, I want to have a 
a bell curve up and just make, you know, make lots of people, you know, make a, something that people value and that's actually good, worth something. So yeah, there, uh, they can find me at, um, ecomdna.com, which is my website. Find me on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, John Cavendish on LinkedIn. Um, I do a lot of LinkedIn outreach and a lot of LinkedIn stuff. So LinkedIn is where I'm very active and, uh, yeah, that's about it. Cool. Thanks a lot, uh, John, and uh, enjoy the rest of the summit. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simon. So we're back at the cross-border summit in Guangzhou. So today with uh, James Chanet. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so yeah, very cool to have you. Um, I just got introduced by, by another James, James, yeah, James Song, James Song. Uh, and uh, he mentioned about you and you being very active when it comes to bringing out uh, video content. Uh-huh. Uh, very cool. Yeah, you just showed me a little bit on uh, Miao Pai and also on Yoku and some other channels uh-huh. uh, where you basically are doing that uh, free of charge, but just for yourself as a hobby. Yes. To actually pursue your main main goal, which is uh, teaching. So can you share a little bit more about what you're doing in China and what brought you here and uh, yeah yeah I've been living in China now for almost 15 years my dream coming to China was really not to make millions of dollars but to try to help millions of people and so I do a lot of volunteer work I've done over 8,000 hours of volunteering at the schools I go to many schools to give speeches most of my speeches are about making students interested in English how to excite them motivate them to want to learn English more and I also share some things about Western culture as well. I'm from the U.S. I I talk about Western education, American education. Sometimes I also will talk to the teachers as well. I speak after my speeches with the students for about 45 minutes to one hour. Then I will have a meeting with the teachers, usually the English teachers, and then they can um, uh, we can brainstorm together. They can ask me a lot of questions, and I can try to um, give them some ideas about maybe how we would do it in our in our way. And, and I think uh, the problem with a lot of the, the English teachers in China is uh, they focus a lot on, on grammar. They focus a lot on re- writing and reading. Um, of course, spoken English, they don't speak very much in class. They don't uh, speak enough to where students can listen to you know, full sentences and, and they don't speak back in English. So this is a big problem with the English education, <laughs> as you yeah. probably have known. Yeah. And so uh, I think the foreigners that come to China, we're really good at making students speak, making them open their mouth and making them talk and uh, interact more with the students. So we're, we're really good at that. So that's what I started doing. And uh, I started to uh, collect a lot of followers. Uh, uh, every school I, I give a speech to, sometimes um, there's a thousand students or sometimes uh, I think I've done 8,000 students, you know, to all the students. And so um, a lot of times I will get a lot of people wanting my email or wanting my just uh, Weibo contact. So later I started to um, collect a lot of fans this way, a lot of followers this way. And I also did uh, Guangzhou TV too. I used to do uh, programs for the English channel back in 2007 and around 2011. They had an English channel in Guangzhou, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately they canceled the English channel. (laughs) So I don't do a lot of programs for them no more. But uh, I really enjoyed doing videos and enjoyed uh, just just being on TV and things like that. Those are really fun. So uh, after the English channel canceled around 2011, um, I continue to make my own videos. Uh, a lot of students were always asking me, James, uh, how, how do I communicate with a foreigner? So I would try to make some videos showing how maybe two people would interact uh, and have a conversation in English. Yeah. And then later I started to um, interview just business people to give some business tips because I have a lot of older, older students that are in college or people that are business people that are learning English as well. So I wanted to um, uh, interview business people to give tips. 
And then I started interviewing uh, entertainers, some singers, uh, some actors, some artists. So I just started branching off to different areas of interviewing. And so I enjoy doing that as a hobby. Yeah. Because yeah. the video, actually, you can basically measure the success of a post. Yeah. So, so what, what are you, because you showed me already some numbers. You, some of them, you said, oh, this didn't work that well. This, this worked really well. What's the common denominator to say, like, uh, which, what do you need to think about to get the attention, to grab the attention of a Chinese? Well, I found that, of course, uh, the length of the video is very important. Can I make it so so long? I yeah. think I was making, my first videos, I was making like 15 to 20 minute long videos, almost doing like a half hour program. But uh, I find a lot of the people are not uh, watching that long, maybe uh, four or five minutes. I think if they can finish your video and they really like it, then they will forward it. They're going to forward it to other people. Yeah. But if they don't finish your video, they may not know what's at the end of the video and they may not forward your video. So it's good to try to make your videos kind of short. And uh, of course, I edit my videos to try to get to the main point and just try to get some excitements going in the videos as well. Yeah. The, the highlight of the videos. Um, so that helps. I try to use some background music as well, add some background sound to make it kind of uplift the interview sometimes. Yeah. And uh, let's see here. Uh, unfortunately, I don't do the subtitles as much as I should. Yeah. Every once in a while, I have a friend that will help me with the subtitles, the English and the Chinese subtitles. That really helps a lot. Right. You can have somebody that can help you with the, the subtitles. But uh, sometimes I have to send out my stuff to my friend. And then it takes them a, a few days, sometimes a week for them to send it back to me. Yeah. So uh, because of the hassle of just um, waiting for the subtitles to come back, uh, I can just, you know, edit the video real quick and just post it the next day. So I don't post, I don't, I don't have any subtitles. But yeah, uh, that would help as well if you can have yeah. some subtitles. And now I also do some interviews where I will um, ask the question in English and then they can respond in Chinese because some yeah. of my uh, interviewers or people I interview, uh, they don't speak English very well. Yeah. So they say, can I speak some Chinese? Yeah. And so I will allow them to speak Chinese and that also brings up the views as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because la language obviously is uh, very important for cross-border trading. Yeah. Mm. Um, when it, most uh, Chinese born after the 80s, in my opinion, don't speak uh, speak some English, but before hardly. So actually most of the, the gray hair community actually has the most knowledge on doing business in China, but is not capable enough to really bring a message across. So it's really cool that you're trying to overcome this with uh, just getting the knowledge out of the head of the ones that have a lot to share, but are not capable enough to express themselves clearly in English. Yeah. Um, so, but uh, because of the internet, um, I, f I find uh, the younger generation are starting to you know, learn English, uh, like probably under 30 and 40 years old, they're, uh, they're, they know some English. So uh, I think um, because most of the people that use the internet are in their 20s and 30, you know, maybe under 30, uh, uh, those people are usually learning English. They kind of know some English. So I think the videos are interesting to them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So for the, the students that are uh, following you and that you're teaching, uh -huh. what is basically your dream for them? Because you're doing this with a purpose. You have uh, your own personal mission. So how would you define that? And what do you want the, the students to, the Chinese students to get away with uh, and also to progress in the future? Yeah, I hope I can help them with their dreams. You know, I'm getting kind of old now, so sometimes it's hard for us to uh, continue our dreams. But when we can see other people's dreams come true, it's really exciting. And I, I helped a lot of students uh, improve their English, of course. Uh, you know, I've been in China for 15 years. And uh, today I'm starting to see a lot more students going abroad that are a lot younger now. You know, before, I think 
a lot of people go abroad in college mm. to get a college education. But now I have seen a lot of uh, families uh, sending their kids over when they're just in middle school, yeah. uh, in high school even. So I have seen that happening more often. Uh, I think they feel that the younger they can start interacting uh, socially, they can interact with the, the Westerners, foreigners, uh, and start using language more. I think they feel the kid will have a lot more opportunity um, to get a to get into good college a lot easier because they don't have the language barrier. Um, they can also pass the SAT and not have to worry about this IELTS uh, testing, <laughs> yeah. uh, international testing sometimes. So I think that's why I see a lot happening is um, parents are sending the kids overseas a lot, a lot sooner. Yeah. And of course, in China, there's a lot more international schools as well, uh, bilingual schools. So they're starting to send their kids to a lot of international bilingual schools where there's foreigners there. So that helps them a lot to learn English yeah. better. Yeah. <laughs> so, so myself, I have two boys. Oh. And one of the reasons that we're considering at some point to go back to Europe, where I'm from, oh, uh-huh. because of the school. Um, uh-huh. Because uh, in our opinion, and I would like to hear your experience, because you've been 15 years, you know much more about education in China, is that in China, China it's more about being a test taker uh-huh. and not a pathfinder. Yes. So, so how would you respond to that, to, uh, whether that's valid or not, or what's the... Uh, yeah, I agree to some point. Um, there are always good things about you know Chinese education, and there's some bad things, and there's some good things about you know, American education, and there's also a lot of bad things too. Um, I think the good things about uh, the Chinese education I find is the students they can study, they can really focus a lot more mm-hmm. compared to my. I remember you know my friends in the in the U.S. The kids uh, they want to finish around afternoon, two or three o'clock. They want to go home and play or, yeah. or start playing sports, but. Uh, in China, it's really amazing to see uh, kids um, still still studying in school f- till five or six o'clock at night. You know, mm. they go throughout all night and uh, they don't complain. You know, they're just doing what everybody else is doing, studying. Yeah. So that is really, I, I really think that's really good. Um, and uh, I don't know, I think it's changing a little bit. I see a lot more things, uh, like there are a lot more sports now in school. I see a lot of kids are able to play uh, football uh, and a, as a team sport and even basketball and even like uh, swimming and a lot of other uh, recreational sports, which helps, you know, the confidence as well as how to interact with people. And, yeah. and uh, a lot more clubs also starting up. I see a lot of schools now that have different kind of clubs you can attend. So I think Chinese education is improving a lot to where uh, kids can become more creative, become more independent. Um, not just listen to the teacher all the time or repeat all the time. I mean, there's a lot of memorization. That's what we hear a lot. But uh, I do see some changes, though. I do see mm-hmm. some changes where Chinese education, they're trying to um, kind of improve it and trying to mix, blend it in uh, with uh, uh, which, so students can become more independent. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, I think the, the future, do you, do you foresee, the, like you said, more like a blended system where there's a Chinese basic way of teaching uh, regarding content and way of teaching, but also getting some components out of other countries exactly. and get inspiration? Or do you think it will be really a replicate of an international school, which is basically based on the vo- almost Western values? Yeah, I do see some blending of that already. You know, um, some schools, it uh, takes time to... Uh, I see a lot of newer schools. You see a lot of newer schools being built in the countryside or in a, in a nicer area. So they're kind of replacing these old, old schools. And with the newer schools, they're also uh, having more different kind of curriculum. So we do see a lot of uh, adaption of 
uh, things like uh, like I said uh, before, the, the old schools, they don't have school gyms, they don't have basketball courts, they don't have all these things. But now you go to some nice schools. I've been to some really nice schools. They have everything that a Western school has. They have gymnasiums, they have TV uh, you know, monitors mm. in the classroom. For I mean, they have all the technology, they have computers uh, in the room. So it's really uh, changing a lot. And, and um, I see, like I said, team sports, a lot of people, a lot of schools now uh, are starting to um, uh, get involved with team sports. Yeah. So last question, what can Western schools learn from the Chinese schools? Well, because the blending here takes place, but why, why not do that the reverse way as well, right? Yeah, I, I think there could be a, some changes. Uh, I, I, what I like about schools in China is um, they have the uniform system. Uniform, most students should wear their uniform, but in America, uh, I'm, I remember kids are always so concerned about their, what, they, what they wear at yeah. school and even their parents a lot. You know, girls maybe take a long time putting on the makeup and doing the hair and guys also want the, the coolest clothing. But uh, I think kids shouldn't be focused so much on, the, on that right now, you know. Yeah. And so in, in, the, in Chinese schools, uh, everybody wears uniforms. Some people complain they don't like wearing a uniform. But I think it's pretty cool where I don't see kids complaining so much about, oh, you look different than me today or, you know, you have different clothes on. They don't, that's not really the, uh, a big problem with, with what we have in America. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the study habits. Yeah, um, kids can really study more. Um, when I teach Chinese, I'm a when I teach English, uh, I can make students do these oral exercises for hours, yeah. even, you know. But in America, I don't think nobody would want to <laughs> repeat uh, some sentences, uh, whether it's Chinese sentences or learning a new language sentences. They won't, they don't want to follow that yeah. kind of rule. They would never, that system would not work very yeah. easily because they're so independent. They all want to do their own thing. So uh, I think Chinese people are more collective. They work together in groups a lot easier, a lot better, a lot more effectively in teams. And th I think they work better. So um, I think uh, if Westerner schools can learn how Chinese schools are able to manage this, I think that would help kids focus better in America. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. <laughs> cool. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Okay. Cool. cool. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, hope to hear from you more as well. Yeah. I know you're doing really well with your podcast. Thank you. In Shanghai. Thanks. And uh, I think it's fun. It's fun to interview people, fun to get to know other people. And we learn things too from other people. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Okay, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Bye-bye. Doing business in China is a complex world. You can quickly feel alone and lost in its maze. But don't worry. China Business Cast is here for you. Sign up for our newsletter and regular updates on our website at www.chinabusinesscast.com. Thanks for tuning in.